Howdy. I am Ada Road Short, a queer trans woman whose pronouns are she, her, and this is the Totally Trans Podcast Network. This week and next week, we will be revisiting an old episode from our first season where we were still just doing Searching for the Trans Canon. And we discussed the book, Breakfast at Tiffany's, the characters Holly Golightly and Meg Wildwood, and my own relationship to youth and girlhood and being a bit of a disaster. I felt like it's worth revisiting at this point because when we recorded this, one, Henry and I were still really new at this and we scripted way more than we needed to. But two, I was a girl still. I was young. Uh, I think if you'd asked me at the time, I probably would have been like, well, I'm a grown ass woman, but I, I was, I was not, I was a baby. And now I am a woman in her thirties. And I'm just really curious how I will respond to this differently, as well as how the listeners might. So if you would like to join our conversation, please back us on Patreon at $5 or more so you get access to our Discord server and go into the show chat and give us your questions and comments and anecdotes potentially about how you relate to Holly Go Lightly and Breakfast at Tiffany's or how you don't. And uh, let us know because we will be discussing them in part two of this, which we'll be recording next week on either November 20th or 21st of 2023. We're excited to see what everyone thinks and how you feel about it. So let us know and uh, enjoy the show. Quick content notice before we begin. An important plot point in this book is Holly's childhood sexual abuse. If you need to avoid this, then we will give you a quick warning with an approximate time window of how much to skip forward ahead during the two times when this comes up in the episode. Hi, Henry. When is the last time you read Truman Capote's 1958 novella, Breakfast at Tiffany's? Because I reread it recently, and it gave me so many queer and trans vibes... There's a lot going on in this book, but it primarily focuses on Holly Golightly, a teenage runaway turned New York cafe society girl who pays her way by flirting with wealthy older men. The author describes Holly as singing in the hoarse, breaking tones of a boy's adolescent voice, having boy's hair, and having a face beyond childhood, yet this side of belonging to a woman. However, the thing that feels the most trans to me is the way Holly relates to men, and they relate to her. Holly is surrounded by a constant stream of men who are completely obsessed with her and constantly showering her with gifts and money in the hopes of winning her affection. The only person these men obsess over more is Holly's sometimes friend and eventual occasional roommate, Mag Wildwood, who is over six feet tall, has muscular arms, an angular face, and is completely flat-chested. And we are just scratching the surface. So this week, I want to tell you why I think Truman Capote's Breakfast at Tiffany's is totally trans. I am Ada Road Short, an activist, academic engineer, and queer trans woman whose pronouns are she, her. And I'm Henry Jardina, 
I'm a writer, a critic, and a trans guy. My pronouns are he, they. This is Totally Trans, searching for the trans canon, where we talk about some of the most well-known figures from film, literature, and media. And tell you why we think they deserve to be part of the trans cultural canon. This week, we are talking about Truman Capote's 1958 novella, Breakfast at Tiffany's, which is available through your local bookstore or public library. When I first tried to explain to my friends why this book felt so trans to me, I felt like just pointing to the descriptions of individual characters and their actions didn't quite cut it. Part of that is because in many ways this book is more trans than the sum of its parts. It's hard to point to an individual character or sentence that fully captures how trans the text feels. And when I was initially trying to figure out how to explain it, I initially thought the best way to contextualize it would be to discuss queer and trans community in New York City. Because frankly, half of the characters in this book are queer or trans. However, the more I thought about it, the more I felt like it tied into a complicated topic that practically all trans women have some experience dealing with. That being the fetishization of trans women's bodies by heterosexual men. The social, historical, and cultural context for the sexualization of trans feminine bodies is ancient, and there are thousands of years of records of trans women being worshipped as goddesses, oracles, and sex workers in every human civilization. However, if we want to look at examples of this phenomenon in the context of the time when Truman Capote was writing Breakfast at Tiffany's, we'll have to take a look once more at America's mid-century obsession with Christine Jorgensen, who is coming up for the third time on this podcast. Henry, what can you tell our listeners about Christine? Christine Jorgensen was a trans woman born in the Bronx in 1926. And while she was certainly not the first American to travel to Europe to medically transition, an option which had been available for 20 years, she was the first to do so publicly, with the sensational headline, XGI Becomes Blonde Beauty, appearing on the front page of the New York Daily News on December 1st of 1952. Christine was an overnight sensation when she returned from Europe, While Christine initially said that she desired to return to a quiet life, she had trouble finding employment as an out trans woman. But due to her newfound notoriety, she was able to sustain herself through public appearances, and she had a successful career as a nightclub performer, radio and television personality, and an actress and singer. Christine's singing voice is amazing, by the way, and I am honestly a little fucked up and jealous about it. And I adore the bizarre and clever humor of her music, And if anyone finds a copy of Crazy Little Men and Nervous Jervis on vinyl, please DM me on Twitter. An authorized version of Christine's life story was published in 1953 in the American Weekly, and her autobiography, published in 1967, sold nearly half a million copies. During her life in the limelight, Christine tirelessly advocated for trans women and served as an important model for a potential life for countless trans women. Details of Jorgensen's medical transition were detailed in her memoir, which described her after receiving an orchiectomy in 1951. As you can see by the enclosed photos taken just before the operation, I have changed a great deal. But it is the other changes that are much more important. Remember the shy, miserable person who left America? Well, that person is no more. And as you can see, I'm in marvelous spirits. This reflects a sentiment that a lot of trans people continue to describe today, that they look so much happier in the pictures of them taken after transitioning. Another way Christine impacted the lives of trans Americans was by being one of the first people to have a vaginoplasty in the United States to follow up on the orchiectomy and the panectomy she had received in Europe. The procedure was performed under the supervision of Harry Benjamin, 
who acknowledged her for both her activism and her contribution to the availability of trans healthcare in America in the foreword of her autobiography. Indeed, Christine, without you, probably none of this would have happened. The grant, my publications, lectures. However, Christine's relationship to the public shifted over time. Increasingly, the media was less interested in what she had to say and more interested in her body. And she was often asked to be photographed nude. Her personal relationships with men were also fraught. She had initially planned to marry John Traub, a labor union statistician, after her vaginoplasty. But the engagement was called off, and her second engagement to typist Howard J. Knox was called off when their marriage license was rejected due to her birth certificate listing her as male in 1959. Howard Knox was then fired from his job when it was found out that he had been engaged to a trans woman. This stigma against her womanhood and fascination with her body culminated in something not entirely new, but suddenly increasingly common, the fetishization of her trans body. In his problematically titled article, Imagining the She-Male, Pornography and the Transsexualization of the Heterosexual Man, Sex and media expert Jeffrey Escoffer discusses heterosexual men's objectification of trans women's bodies and says, Erotic interest in transsexual women first emerged in 1953, following the publicity surrounding the MTF sexual reassignment surgery of Christine Jorgensen, whose sex change operation introduced the transsexual as a representative figure of modern life. A scoffer's article is frankly hard to read because he casually uses a lot of language that is not okay, especially when you consider that it was written in 2011, and it surprises me that it was published without someone saying, hey, maybe stop using the word she-male so much in an academic article. And there are sections of this paper that emanate the same energy of a random man sending you unsolicited dick pics. That being said... The paper is really interesting because it chronicles the rise of chasers, who are most often heterosexual men, who fetishize trans women's bodies, though the label can also be applied to anyone who fetishizes any trans body. The article does provide a tidy little summary of the history and prevalence of trans porn, which has become one of the most popular and profitable genres of pornography in the past several decades, and attempts to explain its appeal through quotes from various sources, including one from the writer Jonathan Ames, who says, I was attracted to pre-op transsexual prostitutes. I found them to be beautiful in this otherworldly way. To me, they were mythical, and being around them was my escape into a world of risk and eros and beauty and tragedy. Other quotes are less romantic and included. I like girls with a little something extra, you know what I mean. Pretty with a big dick. <laughs> Did you know that you can change what you taste by what you hear? How can you use sound to make a deeper connection with your clients? Can we be healed with sound? Sound influences people in their buying decisions and their daily lives. In the podcast audio branding, I explore all of this, both with my own observations as a voice actor of over 15 years and by interviewing knowledgeable professionals in the field of advertising, marketing, music, and science. To have a listen for yourself, visit audiobrandingpodcast.com. Various other scholars have attempted to explain why cishet men are so fascinated with trans women, including author Jay Phillips. Phallic woman challenges the fixity of our own sexual identity. And neuroscientist O.G. Orgas, who theorized it was... Different sexual cues in novel combinations. 
However, I think the most likely explanation is simply that they are heterosexual men and we are beautiful women. Of course they're obsessed with us. Why wouldn't they be? I am very hot. That being said, I do enjoy Jonathan Ames' description of us as otherworldly and mythical, and it definitely lines up with how, historically, straight men have responded to people like Christine Jorgensen in the 1950s and continue to respond to trans women today. Many trans women use this mythical beauty to support themselves through various forms of sex work and have found those experiences validating and empowering, and a lot of trans women have relied on it to pay the bills and support themselves when they couldn't find other work due to discrimination. In Breakfast at Tiffany's, we see Holly Golightly and Mag Wildwood do this as well. They use their otherworldly beauty and charm to support themselves by capitalizing on heterosexual men's attraction to them for the social prestige and monetary gain. Breakfast at Tiffany's, like many of Truman Capote's stories, is told by a narrator who is loosely based off of the author himself. However, the events of the story are largely fictional. The book was eventually adapted into a movie starring Audrey Hepburn, but the movie is a pretty heteronormative romance that removes a lot of the elements that make the book interesting and only has superficial similarities in plot and characterization. Capote was an incredibly gay writer born in 1924 in New Orleans. In addition to his writing, Capote is also notable as just being famous for the sake of being famous, and he was often seen hobnobbing with the rich and famous. I say famous a lot in that sentence, and I'm leaving it the way it is. However, he also delighted in telling stories and starting rumors about other celebrities that were entirely false, which people thought was charming due to their obvious absurdity. Therefore, it can be assumed that many of the narrators in Capote's stories are not necessarily the most reliable. The story begins in the late 1950s, the narrator recalling his first apartment in New York City's Upper East Side in 1943 and his friendship with his neighbor Holly Golightly. He admits that he does not think he would have ever written about Holly if he hadn't been reminded of her by Joe Bell. Joe owns the Lexington Avenue bar that Holly and the narrator frequented. It was their habitual hangout, and Joe would take phone messages for them. Joe is a short man with white hair who spends his spare time arranging flowers. He's the first man that we meet that is obsessed with Holly. His other obsessions include ice hockey, wear Mariner dogs, I don't know how to pronounce that, a radio soap called Our Gal Sunday, and the music of Gilbert and Sullivan. Joe Bell is interesting in that he kind of feels queer-coded, but he also talks about his general sexual frustration as he ages and can no longer act on his desires. However, he clarifies that while he loved Holly, he never thought of her sexually. To me, Joe Bell is interesting because he's obviously a gay man just based on that list of interests, I think it's pretty clear. And clearly a very lonely gay man. And I think it's interesting to note that, like, in the 40s and 50s, there was a lot of room for homosocialization. And by the 50s, the Mattachine Society had been created. But I think there weren't as many opportunities to sort of be around women without sort of having this pressure to, like, have a beard or somehow, like, use them to assert your heterosexuality. So I think it's interesting that he shows his repressed gayness through his love for Holly because it's almost a way of, like, making his queerness okay. Because it's sort of, I think, a role that Holly plays throughout this is, like, she's so radically unjudgmental, despite being often racist, <laughs> that misfits and outcasts just sort of cling to her because they know that she's gonna accept them. Even if they're, like, a gross, shitty dude, she's gonna accept them. 
Joe also introduces us to a second man who is obsessed with Holly, Mr. Iwai Yunioshi, a Japanese-American photographer who used to be Holly and the narrator's upstairs neighbor. One thing that is interesting about his introduction is that Joe Bell is super racist in the way he refers to Yunioshi, but the narrator corrects him by saying that he is an American from California. A fascinating running theme throughout this book is that each of the main characters have different levels of racial prejudices which play out in their behavior and language. And it's really interesting that the narrator, or at least the narrator as he describes himself in 1943, is more racist than some of the other characters. It's really important to take a moment here and just point out the way Yunioshi is depicted in the movie, where it's basically Mickey Rooney doing really egregious yellow face acting, and he just exists as a joke in the film. He kind of exists to yell at Holly and be racist, and it's uh, pretty shitty. Yunioshi in the book is more of a fleshed out character. He's actually a successful photographer who has been written about in the society and gossip pages of the Winchell, which implies that he's actually quite successful. We should also point out that in 1943, Japanese Americans living in California and the rest of the West Coast would have been put in American internment camps, which were essentially concentration camps, against their will as a racist paranoid reaction from the American government. However, this is never referenced in the book, and with the exception of Joe Bell, nobody is overtly racist towards Yunioshi. Joe Bell shows the narrator pictures that Yunioshi sent him from Africa, where he has been on assignment for a magazine. The pictures show a wooden carving that is immediately recognizable as Holly Golightly, and Joe Bell explains that the carver claims to have slept with Holly while she was traveling through Africa, a claim that Joe Bell rejects due to racist reasons, but the narrator believes. The narrator then transports us back to 1943 and his first encounters with Holly Golightly, who causes a ruckus by ringing Yunioshi's bell to get him to buzz her in. He objects to being used in this way, but she placates him by suggesting that maybe she will finally model for him, which he is very interested in. However, we never find out if Holly models for Yunioshi, and she then starts ringing the narrator's buzzer late at night. The narrator portrays Holly as a manic pixie dream girl type who constantly has gentleman callers to the disapproval of their fourth neighbor, Madame Sophia Spinella, who accuses Holly of being, quote, a whore. I think the narrator's physical descriptions of Holly are really interesting, and they're one of the things that make me think that not only does she seem trans, but she is intentionally trans and the text is written. He initially describes Holly Golightly as, I went out into the hall and leaned over the banister, just enough to see without being seen. She was still on the stairs. Now she reached the landing, and the ragbag colors of her boy's hair, tawny streaks, strands of albino blonde and yellow, caught the hall light. Notably, blonde is in the masculine spelling without the trailing E. It was a warm evening, nearly summer, and she wore a slim, cool black dress, black sandals, a pearl choker. For all her chic thinness, she had an almost breakfast cereal air of health, a soap and lemon cleanness, a rough pink darkening in the cheeks. Her mouth was large, her nose upturned. A pair of dark glasses blotted out her eyes. It was a face beyond childhood, yet this side of belonging to a woman. I thought her anywhere between 16 and 30. I probably attach a little too much meaning to these parts of the description, but this side of belonging to a woman and having a face that is hard to place an age on are also super trans. Holly is followed by a man who doesn't really matter, but she essentially turns him away from coming into her apartment because he didn't give her enough money when she went to the powder room earlier in the night for which she would normally expect to receive at least $50, which is the equivalent of $750, which is a lot. Over the next several pages, 
The narrator reveals more that he learns about Holly through basically being a creeper and looking through her mail and garbage and watching her from his window. We learn that her hair is dyed, her sunglasses are actually prescription lenses, and that her mail is filled with unsolicited sexual and romantic letters from men, which is highly relatable. However, we also find out that Holly plays the guitar and sings with the hoarse, breaking tones of a boy's adolescent voice. The narrator finally meets Holly in person one night when he catches her watching him from the fire escape while she is only wearing a bathrobe. He lets her in because it's cold outside and she reveals that she is fleeing a man who's in her apartment and is drunk and violent and bites her too much for her taste. She asks the narrator about himself and finds out that he is a struggling writer which she takes as an excuse to inquire about the age of various wealthy successful writers and explains that she has trained herself to be attracted to older men. She then reads his story and is kind of a bitch, honestly, but then she goes off on a tangent about lesbians and says the word dyke a lot. Incidentally, do you happen to know any nice lesbians? I'm looking for a roommate. Well, don't laugh. I'm so disorganized. I simply can't afford a maid. And really, dykes are wonderful homemakers. They love to do all of the work. You never have to bother about brooms and defrosting and sending out the laundry. I had a roommate in Hollywood. She played in westerns. They called her the Lone Ranger. But I'll say this for her. She was better than any man around the house. Of course, people couldn't help but think, I must be a bit of a dyke myself. And of course I am. Everyone is a bit. So what? That never discouraged a man yet. In fact, it seems to goad them on. Which is... So awesome in multiple levels, because it's really cool to see explicit bisexuality in a book in the 1950s. And also, I would really like to meet this Lone Ranger. If you match her description, please, please, please let me know. Additionally, I think it is interesting that Holly is aware of her bisexuality as something that entices men, and she uses this to attract them and profit off of them. I like, too, that Holly genuinely doesn't seem to care about the person's gender. Like, people say this in a corny way, like, oh, I fall in love with the person, not the gender, but usually it's a lie, especially if you're dating while trans and people tend to always kind of have, like, another agenda. But with Holly, it's just so matter-of-fact, and she just seems to accept intimacy wherever she can get it. And again, this is like an aspect of her sort of radically non-judgmental spirit that allow her to create this queer community around her. The narrator and Holly seem to bond on a queer, we are family level, and end up having a platonic cuddle while Holly explains that she had to go meet with the gangster Sally Tomato in prison that morning and pretend to be his niece and get the weather report, which she tells his lawyer, Mr. O'Shaughnessy, who in turn pays Holly a bunch of money. Holly says Sally first saw her when he was in Joe Bell's before he was arrested, and he also became obsessed with her, so now she's paid to keep him company in prison. They then fall asleep until they are woken up by Holly having a bad dream about her brother Fred, and she leaves to return to her own apartment. Throughout the text from this point forward, Holly also refers to the narrator as Fred a lot, showing how close she feels familiarly to him, and explaining a lot of the comfort she has around her body with relation to the narrator. The next week, Holly invites the narrator to a party. The party scene feels super duper trans and introduces several important characters, so we're going to spend a lot of time on it before basically fast forwarding through most of the rest of the book. When the narrator arrives, he finds a short, incredibly hairy, elfish man with a bald head and lifted shoes in Holly's apartment. This is Holly's agent, O.J. Berman, who you could read as either a trans man or incredibly anti-Semitic, or maybe both. What do you think, Henry? I think it's a little bit of both. 
Um, I think that it's definitely like the way he's described as being a bit oily and like short. I think it's interesting that they harp on his shortness and smallness and kind of like meanness and just the ways in which he is maybe trying to compensate for the ways in which he's not like a traditionally handsome guy. But I also sort of got pimp vibes from him. And in the movie, it's interesting to note that he's T for T. He's hitting on a trans girl named Irving. And it, the whole thing kind of gives me like Dante Tex Gill vibes, aka the subject of that awful movie that Scarlett Johansson was going to make playing a trans guy that never happened. R.I.P. Rub and Tug. O.J. Berman and the narrator have an interesting exchange about Holly while she is in the shower getting ready. So, what do you think? Is she or ain't she? Ain't she what? A phony. I wouldn't have thought so. You're wrong. She is a phony. But on the other hand, you're right. She isn't a phony because she's a real phony. She believes all this crap she believes. You can't talk her out of it. I've tried with tears running down my cheeks. Benny Pollen. Respected everywhere. Benny Pollen tried. Benny had it on his mind to marry her. She didn't go for it. Benny spent thousands sending her to head shrinkers, even the famous one. I think that this is really interesting because the is she or ain't she and questions about if she is a phony feels a lot like trans speculation and Bernie essentially outing Holly to the narrator, which is totally not okay, by the way, and then describing sending her to a therapist to talk her out of it. This is an interesting scene both in the film and in the book. Because we have this exchange and then directly afterward, at least in the book, Madge basically, Madge Wildwood goes to the bathroom, I think, and then comes back and there's, she's been outed or there's been a secret revealed and everyone treats her differently and she sort of does an about face. And it's just kind of an interesting scene where you have all these trans people. It's a very queer environment, but you're kind of like, okay, so are all these people trying to be stealth? And then like when they get pissed at each other, they try to out each other. It's very interesting tension. It's also revealed by Berman and confirmed by Holly that Holly was an actress and she was discovered by Berman who sent her to voice training to make her sound more like a proper woman and transformed into the woman she is today, Pygmalion style. However, Holly walked away from that to move to New York while blowing off her big Hollywood audition because she didn't really want to be an actress. Guests begin to arrive at the party, and to the guest's surprise and mild disappointment, all of the guests are wealthy-looking men who Holly clearly picked up in the bars. However, one guest seems particularly comfortable in Holly's apartment and plays host. This is Rusty Trawler. He was a middle-aged child that had never shed its baby fat, though some gifted tailor had almost succeeded in camouflaging his plump and spankable bottom. His face, a zero filled with pretty miniature features, had an unused virginal quality. It was as if he'd been born, then expanded, his skin remaining unlined as a blown-up balloon, and his mouth, though ready for squalls and tantrums, a spoiled sweet puckering. So... Rusty Trawler is an adult baby, both in his physical appearance and mannerisms, and in the fact that I am like 99% sure he's in a big little kink relationship with Holly. He is apparently one of the wealthiest men in America after his wealthy parents died when he was a child, and then his godfather was arrested for molesting him, which is really sad and definitely left Rusty with a lot of trauma. But also, Rusty is a literal Nazi and attends Nazi rallies, and you should definitely not feel too sorry for him. Also, the only reason that Holly seems to be with him is that she is pro-doming him and is angling to marry him and then divorce him, taking a bunch of money on the way out, which is a hustle I absolutely respect. 
if you think that the adult baby big dom mommy thing is just in my head, I'd like to point you to the following passage. I want you to behave, Rusty. She spoke softly, but there was a governess threat of punishment in her tone that caused an odd flush of pleasure or gratitude to pink his face. You don't love me! He complained as though they were alone. Nobody loves naughtiness. Obviously, she'd said what he wanted to hear. It appeared to both excite and relax him. Still, she continued, as though it were a ritual. Do you love me? She patted him. Tend to your chores, Rusty, and when I'm ready, we'll go eat wherever you want. The narrator and Holly discuss the situation further, and the narrator doesn't understand why Rusty is drawn to this infantile state, and then things get explicitly trans for a minute. Can't you see? It's just Rusty feels safer in diapers than he would in a skirt, which is really the choice, only he's awfully touchy about it. He tried to stab me with a butter knife because I told him to grow up and face the issue, settle down and play house with a nice fatherly truck driver. Meantime, I've got him on my hands, which is okay. He's harmless. He thinks girls are dolls, literally. Harmless? He tried to stab you with a butter knife. So... Rusty being a violent Nazi aside, I think it's really interesting that Holly takes it upon herself to crack Rusty's egg. This is a situation that trans feminine people find themselves in a lot, actually. I know our guest last week, Florence Ashley, has written a paper on this that they have submitted for review a few weeks ago. And the health geographer and trans scholar Avery Rose posted a really great thread on Twitter about how trans women perform reproductive labor for the community that was really well done, and we'll post a link to it in the episode description. Shortly after this exchange between the narrator and Holly, Holly's friend Mag Wildwood crashes the party. The men who are drawn to the petite and feminine Holly find Mag irresistible. And the only clue we get to what would make these men attracted to these two wildly different women in equal measures is offered in Mag's description. She was well over six feet, taller than most men there. They straightened their spines, sucked in their stomachs. There was a general contest to match her swaying height. Rusty Trawler tittered. He squeezed her arm, as though to admire her muscle. She was a triumph over ugliness, so often more beguiling than real beauty, if only because it contains paradox. In this case, as opposed to the scrupulous method of plain good taste and scientific grooming, the trick had been worked by exaggerating defects. She'd made them ornamental by admitting them boldly. Heels that emphasized her height, so steep her ankles trembled. A flat, tight bodice that indicated she could go to a beach in bathing trunks. Hair that was pulled straight back, accentuating the spareness, the starvation of her fashion model face. So the triumph over ugliness wording, I'm not a huge fan of. But I feel like I know what Capote is trying to describe. I feel like he's exactly describing that otherworldly mythical beauty that Jonathan Ames said was so alluring. Mag's height, muscular arms, and flat chest are all not traditionally feminine features, but the men in the room trip over themselves to get her attention. We also find out that she's just been upstairs working with Yunioshi, taking photos for the Christmas Bazaar. I suspect what they actually mean here is the women's magazine Harper's Bazaar doing a Christmas issue. But the first time I read this, I assumed they meant the annual New York Christmas Bazaars, which personally made me really disappointed that during all of the years of going to the Union Square holiday market with my family, I never once found pictures of an Amazonian trans woman in heels, which is a real shame. Holly is jealous of all the attention that Mag is getting, so when Mag goes to the washroom, Holly loudly spreads rumor about Mag having an STI, 
which is really fucked up. When Mag returns from the washroom, the men are no longer interested in her, so she gets really drunk, tries to fight a guy, directs a pro-Hitler anti-Semitic rant to O.J. Berman. Trans people can be problematic, too. We've all seen it on Twitter. And corners Rusty Trawler, pinning him against the wall and threatening to feed him to the yak at the zoo. Which, combined with the fascist anti-Semitic rant, is a huge turn-on for Rusty. Holly then asks the narrator to get the drunk Amazon into a taxi, but before she can leave, she passes out and the narrator finds her a pillow and she spends the night on Holly's floor. There are a few other important literary elements in this scene, including the introduction of Holly's nameless cat and Holly's description of the mean reds, which is what she calls the anxiety, which she manages by going and looking at pretty things she can't afford in the jewelry store Tiffany's, which is her happy place. Metaphorically, the nameless cat represents Holly's feeling that she doesn't truly belong anywhere. And Holly claims that when she finds the place that she does belong, she'll settle down and give the cat a name. Tiffany's is representative of the place she wishes she could call home. It's luxurious and classy, but also secure, ordered, and stable. However, it's totally unobtainable, and the things she finds beautiful there are behind glass and beyond her grasp. Over the next several days, the narrator comes to realize that Mag has never left Holly's apartment, and the narrator catches the two of them lounging on a blanket with the cat, doing their nails and gossiping about boys. And it is honestly pretty cute, but then less cute because Mag keeps being nationalistic and a little racist. Mag has been dating a Brazilian diplomat and politician named Jose Abara Yeager, and Mag is concerned about marrying him and becoming a Brazilian. She also randomly implies that her grandfather was a Confederate soldier and there is a statue of him. Anywho, we learn that Jose is incredibly handsome and charming and wealthy and powerful, and Holly gently inquires into whether he bites in bed, which Holly does not enjoy, and various other details about him. Mag, on the other side of things, expresses her jealousy over Holly landing Rusty Trawler because Mag has really bad taste in men. Guys, you need to find better men to date. I know it's a tall order, but seriously. A few days later, Holly officially makes Mag her new roommate and adds Mag's name to her Tiffany's embossed name card on her apartment. Fast forwarding a bit, the narrator gets letters informing him that one of his stories gets published to celebrate him and Holly go on a cute adventure where they steal some Halloween masks. Holly buys the narrator a beautiful birdcage he wants for Christmas, but makes him promise to never put a living thing in it. He gives Holly a St. Christopher's medal from Tiffany's, which is actually very thoughtful. Holly is spending a lot of time with Jose, Rusty, and Mag, and they all travel together. Mag suspects Holly and Jose are having an affair. Holly shows one of the narrator's stories to O.J. Berman. Berman likes his story, but thinks he should write about different things that'll be more commercially viable. The narrator and Holly get into a fight about it. If you need to avoid content related to pedophilia, rape, and underage sex, skip forward five minutes now. He goes and sulks at Joe Bell's bar and thinks about how he has a deep familial love for Holly. They don't talk for a long time. He sees Holly researching wealthy Brazilian men at the library. The narrator meets Doc Golightly, Holly's husband, from when she was a child bride in Texas. Then Holly- Holy fucking shit, child bride? No! Stop! Oh yeah, we should- definitely slow down and talk about that part. So Holly has been really evasive about her past and has refused to answer direct questions about it and has even told the narrator stories of like a happy picturesque girlhood, but the stories never seem to line up and Holly is a very bad actress, so the narrator sees right through them as lies. This actually really reminds me of the plausible histories that transsexual women had to construct to cover up their pasts that we discussed in the Little Mermaid episode. 
Anywho, it turns out that the truth behind Holly's past is that her name has not always been Holly Golightly. Before she was Holly, she was Lula Mae Barnes, who, as a 12 or 13-year-old homeless orphan girl wandering through Tulip, Texas with her older brother Fred, who is heavily implied to be mentally handicapped, met Doc Golightly. Doc was a horse doctor, part-time farmer, and widower with three kids who immediately fell for Holly and made her his wife. Nope. Absolutely not. I hate it. I hate it. Yeah, Holly also says several times that there is no way her marriage was legal, though I actually googled it and apparently until 2017, under 16 you could get married in Texas if a judge was cool with it, which is super duper fucked up. Yeah, this is tricky because you can't really consent to sex when you're 13. Sorry, Doc, you're a rapist. Anywho, we are not going to go into the fact that Doc is definitely a pedophile rapist, and that also, in a later scene, Holly says she has only had 11 sexual partners if you only count people after she turned 13, which really makes me sad to think about. However, her being an orphan who was molested by the person whose care she was put in as a child actually creates an interesting parallel life between her and Rusty Trawler. Both of them were orphaned as children, both of them were molested, and perhaps Holly's insistence that Rusty must be trans is her projecting her own experiences onto him because of their shared childhood trauma. What do you think, Henry? I think that definitely makes sense, and it's also, we've seen Holly be around unsafe men, and she knows how to handle them, but she prefers to be around safe men, safe meaning that presumably they won't either want to engage in penetrative sex, or they're not going to act like quote-unquote rats, as she calls them. But the part when she says everything before 13 doesn't count is really sad, because it's like, she's basically saying, all those times I was raped don't count. And yeah, it's really heartbreaking, because a lot of us have to kind of just find ways to be okay with assault in the past to the point of like making a joke about it at a party because it hurts less than kind of being earnest about the ways in which you were taken advantage of yeah hmm. Hmm. now i'm too sad to go on um uh, uh yeah we have to keep going so Holly ran away from Doc's farm when she was 14, changed her name, and never looks back. She admits to loving Doc and still has feelings for him, and she even tells the narrator over drinks the next morning that they had sex last night before Holly put Doc on a bus back to Texas. Holly explains, Right up to the last minute, Doc thought I was going to go with him, even though I kept telling him, But Doc, I'm not 14 anymore. I'm not Lula May." <sighs> But the terrible part is, and I realized it while we were standing there, I am. I'm still stealing turkey eggs and running through a briar patch. Only now I call it having the mean reds. Joe Bell then brings Holly and the narrator martinis, and she tells him, Never love a wild thing, Mr. Bell. That was Doc's mistake. If you let yourself love a wild thing, you'll end up looking at the sky. And my heart deeply aches for Holly, because she views herself as a wild, unlovable thing that causes other people's heartbreak. But she's just a scared little girl, desperately trying to seek out a sense of home, safety, and stability, and drowning in the anxiety that she calls the mean reds. I just want to hold her and tell her that she's safe now, that nobody will hurt her here. 
And it's important to note at this point, if you're hearing this and you feel triggered or you want to reach out and talk to somebody, please don't hesitate to contact RAIN, that's R-A-I-N-N, via their National Sexual Assault Hotline. It's 1-800-656-4673 or 1-800-656-HOPE. A few days later, the narrator sees a newspaper announcing that Rusty Trawler has eloped and married someone. He initially assumes that it must be Holly, but is surprised to find out that he has instead married Mag Wildwood. The narrator goes to console Holly and finds her destroying her apartment in a rampage. Jose shows up with a doctor to sedate Holly, and Jose informs the narrator that Holly isn't upset that Rusty married Mag, and in fact, Jose and Holly had been trying to set them up so that the two of them could be together which is actually kind of cute, and I would watch that rom-com. Holly is upset because she received a telegram from Doc telling her that Fred died in the war. Time passes, Holly doesn't talk about Fred anymore, and Holly has turned all of her attention to Jose, who is now staying in Holly's apartment when he's not in D.C. for work. Holly is being super domestic and claims that she is six weeks pregnant with Jose's baby, which should be strong evidence against the Holly is trans theory, But months later, she isn't showing and pats her flat belly while inviting the narrator to go horseback riding on his birthday and is like, oh no, I'm definitely not trying to tragically lose the baby. That is totally real and not, in fact, made up, which is not an actual quote from the book, but it's what it feels like. Shenanigans happen and the narrator is super racist and then he loses control of his horse leading to a high-speed chase through Central Park and into the streets, where he's rescued by Holly. That night, she is nursing the sore narrator in the bath when the police knock on the door and come to arrest Holly for being part of a drug smuggling operation. Jesus Christ, Holly! Yeah, so remember those guys, Sally Tomato and Mr. O'Shaughnessy, and how they were paying Holly to pretend to be his niece and visit him in prison and get the weather report? Well, it turns out the weather report was actually coded messages about trafficking heroin, which... Holly wasn't aware of. Okay, Holly, sure. Anyhoot, Holly being Holly calls the lady cop a bull dyke, and the lady cop, being a cop, slaps the ever-living shit out of her and arrests her. As Holly is being dragged off, she tells the narrator to, please feed the cat. The narrator goes to Joe Bell's to figure out what to do. They reach out to Mag and Rusty for help, but Mag denies ever knowing Holly and threatens to sue anyone who says they knew each other for slander, which is... Ice fucking cold. They eventually get a hold of O.J. Berman, who says he hired a lawyer to post bail, but after several days, Holly still hasn't shown up. The narrator is concerned and breaks into Holly's apartment to find her and only finds Jose's cousin, who has also broken into Holly's apartment, gathering Jose's things and gives the narrator a letter for Holly that explains that Jose is a coward and a rat and cannot have his political future jeopardized by this state and cannot have his political future stutter. I would like to point out at this point, I think it's really cute that Mag Wildwood has a stutter, because I have a stutter, and I really shouldn't have started a podcast. Because, boy, is this a nightmare. Disagree. Aww. Hard disagree. That's the validation I need. So, as I was attempting to say... Jose is a coward and cannot have his political future jeopardized by this scandal. Two days later, the narrator finally finds Holly in a hospital, which she had been in since the day she was arrested. Holly flippantly says that she lost the air, and the narrator seemingly sarcastically says, One couldn't believe how ill she'd been. Or at least that's how I read it in my head. 
Holly explains that the lady cop beat her up, and Holly said she lost her baby because of it, and she can sue them on several counts, including false arrest, which she can definitely not sue them on because she's 100% guilty. Luckily, Holly had a plane ticket to Brazil that Jose had purchased for her before she was arrested, and Holly tells the narrator to go pack up her things and bring the cat and take it all to Joe Bell's because she refuses to be a snitch. Good for you, Holly. And instead plans to flee the country. She also tells the narrator to call up the Times and get a list of the 50 richest men in Brazil. I'm not kidding. 50 richest, regardless of color. Which again, we, we gotta respect the hustle. Even if she says it in ways that are uncomfortable. Joe Bell is hesitant to help Holly and initially considers turning her in to keep her from fleeing. But in the end, he surprises her with a limo to drive her to the airport. On the way to the airport, Holly pulls over and chases her cat away into the streets. The narrator is horrified and says, Well, you are. You are a bitch. But as they drive away, Holly starts to panic and jumps out of the car to go and find the cat. But she can't find him. The cat is gone. And Holly says, Oh, Jesus God. We did belong to each other. He was mine. The narrator attempts to comfort her and promises to come back and find the cat. I'll take care of him too. I promise. But what about me? I'm very scared, Buster. Yes, at last. But it could go on forever. Not knowing what's yours until you've thrown it away. The mean reds, they're nothing. This, though. My mouth's so dry. If my life depended on it, I couldn't spit. This moment is really important in the narrative because it shows that Holly had a home where she belonged. She should have settled down and named the cat and lived her queer little community with the narrator and Joe Bell and even with Mac. But instead she kept chasing something unattainable. This false sense of security and the luxury and class and stability represented by Tiffany's and by these horrible men she keeps trying to marry. The press assumes Holly was killed in a mob hit after she vanishes. Sally Tomato dies in jail of a heart attack. The landlord re-rents Holly's apartment this time to a gay man that sees more men than Holly ever did, but their shitty transphobic neighbor, Madame Spinella, loves him, and the narrator receives a letter from Holly saying that she met a senior in Brazil, spelt with a dollar sign, and the narrator eventually finds Holly's cat, happily sitting in the window of an apartment, looking pampered and pleased in the home it has found, and the narrator hopes that Holly has found her home too. Hi lovelies, so we have a Patreon, and if you back us at $5 or more a month on Patreon, then we will thank you in a little on-air thank you, which is now. So thank you to Marie Elizabeth and Rachel and Robin, and you also get a little compliment themed around that week's episode. Marie Elizabeth Helms is our cure for the mean reds. Rachel Domagalski attends Truman Capote's Black and White Ball every year. Robin Meinchez could never be a phony. Also, as a note, this week, Henry was not recording at his home. He was at his parents' house. And the sound quality in the second half of the episode gets a little choppy, and there's a dog. We are very aware of it. One thing we would love to do in the future with money from Patreon is hire someone to help us with the editing that is good enough at sound things to be able to fix that stuff for us when we mess up. So 
Thank you for your support, and please back us on Patreon so we can keep bringing you this really cool trans content. Thank you! So, Henry, what do you think? Is she or ain't she? Oh, she is. (laughs) She 100% is. Um... And I think there are many reasons for that, and you pointed out many of them. But I think this book is chock full of evidence that Holly either was inspired by a trans woman or was sort of accidentally portrayed with like a lot of similarities because of the sort of outsider role she held as like a quote-unquote straight woman who is very much in queer society. On inspiration of Holly, it's interesting to note that basically every woman that Capote knew during this time period claimed Holly was based off of them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like Susie Parker, Gloria Vanderbilt. So Truman Capote later said that she was based off of Marguerite Littman. This was like way, 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 way after the book was written. And she had become really notable for HIV activism. And Truman Capote, as we've already acknowledged, is not a reliable narrator in his books or his life. So I think that he kind of just made that up to, like, honor and thank her, which is, honestly, would be chill as fuck. And I think everyone should just kind of accept that. And everyone who is not her should just be like, yeah, okay, Truman Capote thinks this bitch is cooler than me. Yeah, but also, like, the genius of Holly is that, like, she's such an amalgamation. She's such a unique character who clearly came as, like, a patchwork creation out of, like, all these people that Truman Capote probably knew. And also, like, her influence has sort of been scattered to the four winds. Like, obviously, there was Holly Woodlawn. There are a lot of, like, I feel like trans women and also drag queens who reference her. She's iconic. And she's sort of an interesting figure in that she's been very much claimed by, like, cosmopolitan straight women and, like, a huge influence on, like, sex in the city and that whole culture. But I think the version of Holly in the film that has sort of been digested by popular culture a bit more is very tied into, like, a desire for self-care via capitalism and shopping, which really... uh, boils her down to a very different character than she is in the book, where she's just desperately trying to escape her inner fear and anxiety and kind of maybe a sense of imposter syndrome, which many of us do if we've ever felt unsafe or if we grew up in an unsafe environment. What's the thing that makes you feel safe? Access to money. Like for a lot of queer people, it's like, if I have money, then I can protect myself and I can be okay. And so it becomes, where can I get this access? Because traditional jobs aren't always open to trans people. Maybe marrying some dude or doing sex work, it feels like a very common story. And I think it's interesting to point out from the minute we meet her in the film and in the book, she clearly has her own language that maybe exists to get past censorship. But like, you know, rats are obviously Johns somewhat. And the mean reds, I sort of took to mean like she's talking about her trans girl period. Like, it's... Oh my god! (laughs) Because if it was her period, she would just say period. But I feel like she's using this language so that she can talk about parallels to the cis female experience without outing herself. That's sort of how I saw it. And it's like, I can't really do intimacy, or like, I'm not able to. And then little by little, you learn why. You learn she was raped at 13. She's never known safety. It's only with Fred, who is her dependent and who kind of makes her feel like she has a little bit more agency because he might be mentally disabled or handicapped in some way. Yeah, I love the Big Reds as like trans women's hormonal cycles that we 
we need a good word for it. I know a bunch of people have pushed for like, we need to probably study those and understand them because yes. it's a thing. Um, I love that so much. I'm definitely going to start calling that the mean reds. Hell yes. I interpreted them more as just like, um, like manic anxiety and like manic episodes because she does explain that they're literally the opposite of the blues. Right. Let's talk about New York because... Yes. So there's a lot of differences between the movie and the book. One of the things I think the movie really does is romanticize New York in this way that people who've lived in New York often do. Uh, My family lives in New York. It's always the place I think of as home. Whenever I'm like flying into New York to go home and I like see the lights of the city through the airplane window, I always think New York City, center of the universe. It's also where we met when... That's we true. were little babies, and I friend cruised you on the subway, being like, "Yo, I yeah, like your no. shoes." Yeah, I friend. We were friend cruising each other. We're just like, "Oh, you're reading a cool book." <laughs> like, okay, like my thing. This is an interesting origin story for me and Ada because my thing was like, I hated it just because it coincided with a super miserable time in my life. Like in college, I sort of wasn't out, and then I came out, and I was super hard to find community and it was just difficult and I kind of made this promise to myself I took the subway every day I'm like every day I see people reading either the bible or harry potter the minute I see someone reading a book that I would actually read I have to talk to them and it did not happen (laughs) till I saw Ada on the train reading Stephen Fry's um the second installment is Stephen Fry's autobiography I was like I fucking have to talk to her and like (laughs) followed out of that was like what am I doing and then we just started talking yeah it's great New York is is great for things like that like very just like spontaneous like finding community but it's a very hard place to live yeah and in the book we see a lot of the ways in which it's kind of like a weird hard place to live like the only sort of like recreation exercise they get in the city is like trying to find ways to do things in Central Park like Miss Spinella like roller skates through the park which you can do it's just you won't have a great time holly goes horse riding in it which i guess is a thing people used to do there's the horses that pull the carriages but i don't think that's a thing anymore they even say in the book that like in the years between 1943 and the narrator telling the story that the stables are like i think a bank now i do like the parts of the book that capture this very specific moment of change for the city because i think from 1940 from basically right before the war until the 1960s new york undergoes kind of a radical change basically the new york that we think about with frank o'hara truman capote in the 50s became i guess there was just a generational shift and like all these young queer people and like beat poets and whatever started coming in in the 60s and then by the 70s and 80s it was punk rock and then drugs and things It's an interesting portrait of how New York is just constantly changing. Like, you can never step in the same river twice, so to speak. Even the sites they reference, like, they go to Woolworths and they go to Tiffany's, which is obviously still there. But, like, (laughs) I don't think at this point you can go into Tiffany's and buy anything for, I guess, $10 would have been the equivalent of, like, 100 bucks, maybe. Yeah, like 120 bucks, roughly. Maybe you can find something at Tiffany's for that. But I think it's, like... It's just interesting how... 150. 150. How it's like a movie about a moment in New York where capitalism is still very much present, but there's a bit more of a cultural life to the city. And then we will kind of see that cultural life 
disappear within the next 10 years. So even as the narrator is telling his story, he knows that the New York he's describing is no longer exists. Yeah. Well, and that's, I think, everyone's relationship to New York. My family initially lived in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, before the oh, yeah. show Girls came along. Oh my god, yeah. Just, yeah, just kind of destroyed that neighborhood single-handedly. Thanks, Lena yeah. Dunham. All of Great. Brooklyn yeah. is high-rises now, yeah. Yeah, and it kind of went from, like, everyone who lived in my neighborhood either worked in film or was an immigrant, and now everyone that lives in that neighborhood works in Manhattan in a financial firm or is a yoga mom. I feel like Greenpoint was, like, Polish farmers and bakers. Is that where Peter Pan Donuts is? Yeah, it's, like, a very historically Polish neighborhood. When I lived there, it's still very Polish, but then with a lot of, um, I don't know, just, like, a lot of immigrants in general. Versus, like, Williamsburg, right before then, had just gentrified really aggressively and had gone from being, like, very Jewish to, like, being very, like, yuppie. And now my parents actually moved out of Greenpoint and into Williamsburg. And it's, I don't know, it's complicated. New York is a place that's constantly changing. One of the things, though, that remains constant is that it's been this center of queer community for forever because it's a big enough city that we can find each other there, like the way Henry and I found each other. Right. If you're used to like growing up in a smaller town or even a somewhat liberal town, like I lived in Boston for a little while and I would just like wear my like crazy makeup and people would always have shit to say about it. Whereas like in New York, you can have that anonymity. That's often really nice, especially if you're figuring out your gender, figuring out your sexuality, you have the space and room and like so many great resources to do that. Even if you're a queer kid who has been kicked out of the house, there are resources so that you don't hopefully have to be homeless or homeless for too long in cities like New York and LA, whereas in the rest of the country, it's a bit more of a gamble. It's always been a safe haven. And I think especially after the war, like for queer people and trans people, I think the the era that Capote is talking about was strangely a lot more liberal in certain ways in terms of gender and sexuality, just because there was like a curiosity regarding Christine Jorgensen and people were just starting to sort of become curious in a way that turned into cultural fetishization. Yeah. Well, and one thing Florence actually brought up when I was talking with them about this episode was that, like, one of the big assumptions of the time was basically everyone's bisexual. You just choose to be heterosexual because you're American. Right. Kinsey scale. Kinsey scale. Yeah, the Kinsey scale was the late 40s, early 50s initially. So everyone at the time was being like, I guess nobody is really straight except for weirdos. And it's such a bizarre moment because it's like the Kinsey scale is happening, Mad Sheen Society is happening, Christopher Street is starting to become a bit of a gay mecca, but you also have homosexual panic. There are all those like weird documentaries that are like, here's how to spot a gay man cruising for children. And it's like this hysteria around like gay people or pedophiles. There's a divide between maybe what's happening in the Midwest and what's happening on the coasts, where the coasts are like people like Holly, who's like, yeah, everyone's a lesbian, duh. And we have that same divide, actually, for better or worse. Obviously, we're not really discussing the film because it's a totally different beast, but I think it's interesting to note a few things about the film. It was directed by Blake Edwards, legendary director who did Pink Panther. He also, he was married to Julie Andrews, and together they made the 1982 film Victor Victoria which has been remade a million and a half times, first as a silent movie, and then there was a talkie in Germany, then there was a British adaptation, then there's the musical Victor Victoria, which I think 
is one of the most interestingly liberal and sensitive films about this subject matter made by a cis person ever. Like, it's definitely got issues. But I think it is interesting that Blake Edwards is the one to direct this because the party scenes, I think, are the queerest part of the film. At one point, George Pippard is literally just underneath a man's ass. O.J. Berman is hitting on a woman named Irving. George Pippard, as the narrator, is, like, pressing, like, a cold glass against Irving's back to name check her or sort of out her in a certain way. It's just a very bizarre thing, and I think it's just interesting to point out the ways in which Blake Edwards sort of allowed the text to come through, at least non-verbally, in the party scenes and in, like, the crowd scenes and some of the New York montages. Even though, obviously, the film does not do a great job of anything else. It's super racist. Madge Wildwood has, like, a minute or two on screen. The movie, though, it is like a heteronormative romance, and I normally like heteronormative romances. It's interesting in that it's a heteronormative romance between two sex workers. Right. Because the narrator, they change to be a sex worker as well in the movie, which is super interesting. But we don't want to talk about the film a lot here because there's so much in the book. One thing I do want to talk about in the book is what what did you think about everyone's different prejudices and racism? One thing I thought was interesting about Holly and the way it's portrayed with Holly specifically, like we know that she is attracted to and has relationships with various men of color from like the woodcarver to that guy in Cuba to uh, Jose and is like pretty, pretty like chill in that sense. But she's also the only character that uses the N word, the only character that uses several other slurs and like nobody else uses those slurs except Joe Bell, which uses some slurs. I, I don't know. I just thought it was interesting that all of the characters had different prejudices, which is not something you normally see in a text. Generally texts have like a unified front of prejudice. I think it's interesting that, like, Madge, that she has all these really shitty viewpoints and opinions, but I think it's interesting because, like, at that time, and we don't really think about this or talk about this, after the war, there was still a shit ton of Nazi sympathy and anti-Semitism because, like, a lot of Americans were like, oh, we went to war for these assholes? Like, to save the Jews? Ew, I don't care. And there was, like, a lot of backlash. And there are a few really interesting movies about this. 1948's Crossfire, and I think 1951's Gentleman's Agreement. Just kind of about the tension and sort of the sense that we had to defend these people and we didn't really have to go to war, we didn't really have to, like stick our necks out. Like, America was going through a very isolationist, like, empire-building moment, and it took a lot of work to get people kind of into the war. It took a lot of propaganda, and a lot of that was very racist. So I see the racism in the book as being distinctly tied to that moment of post-war paranoia, distrust, xenophobia, sort of a mix of, we're the best, we beat everyone that we fight, and also like, oh, the enemy is still at large. But yeah, Holly, it reminds me of like those problematic white women who go on TikTok and they're like, I want a mixed baby because they're so... I'm just like, oh, stop. Like, it's a person. I think it's also really interesting in the way that like she normally talks in a way that feels very like put on and high class performatively. And then we sort of like see these little bits of her where she definitely sounds like she's from rural Texas. Yeah, we need to talk about her upbringing because I think there are a few interesting things like 
I think the relationship with Fred and the fact that she describes like sleeping in the same bed as her brother and going on kind of scrappy adventures with him. And then when she kind of climbs into bed with the narrator and she's like, oh, it's fine. We're just, it's like, you know, you're my brother. It feels kind of like her childhood was like male socialized because it's like, oh, I'm running around doing adventures with my brothers. And then also like, if you need to avoid content related to pedophilia, rape, and underage sex, skip forward three minutes now. The whole thing with Doc, it feels to me like this trans girl was growing up in a place that was super sexually dangerous and, like, the only way that she could get out was by inventing this identity and, like, when she's telling Doc I'm not Lula May anymore, it feels very much like, no, I'm not that person. I'm like this person now. And you keep trying to drag me into this old shitty identity where I was not only not the person that I wanted to be, but I was not safe. Well, and it also feels really representative of the way a lot of like young queer people are sexualized. And it, it kind of reminds me of when I was like 17 and having a lot of interactions, let's say, with much older men and being like, I'm an adult. It also makes me wonder to what degree she trained herself to do that versus like was sort of groomed to do that. Again, there's this really complicated relationship where you're young and queer and exploring your sexuality and you can't see it from an adult's perspective because you're a kiddo. What happened with Holly was really fucked up because it was definitely survival sex. She like married this man who admittedly seems like he was like nice to her, but he should have been nice to her by like buying her clothes and feeding her and treating her as a child, not marrying her and making her raise his kids. Yeah, it also reminds me of like this trope we see in a lot of kind of more like force feminizing literature, including Hedwig and the Angry Inch, which at some point we'll have to talk about in this podcast, but where it's like this person that's clearly trans who then feels seen by like an older man being like, ooh, you're a pretty little girl. And it's like, oh, that's fucked up because that's a baby. I don't know. That's just like a complicated trope that's hard to unwind. Because it's also validation. You can be as a trans kid or teen or a young adult in a difficult position because it's like you're so starving for people to accept you and like see you as you are. And so like if the first person who sees you as a predator, as we talked about in the Pinocchio episode, if the first person you meet is fucking Honest John, you're screwed. Of course you're going to want to give all your trust to that person. It's like you are looking for new family or looking for parents who will accept you and people who care about you. And like for Holly, it seems like the only person who has done that for her has been Fred and he is her dependent. She speaks of him as a dependent. Her need to take care of him really spurs on a lot of her attitude and relationship to money because she does have this like mothering role, even though she can not really take care of herself very well, it seems. What type of representation does Breakfast at Tiffany's feel like to you? Is it direct or allegorical? I think it's direct. I think it's direct as well. Because I'm a huge nerd, I've made a four-point scale for us to rate things on. It goes from one, headcanon, things that are just trans because we want them to be, two, major gender stuff, lots of gender things happening, but not necessarily gender things that feel trans happening, Three, all but explicit, literally the only thing missing is them using the labels that would be appropriate for the time, which in this case is ambiguous because in the 1940s in America, there wasn't really a commonly accepted universal term for trans women. Um, you'd probably see like transvestite probably would have been the most common potentially cross-dresser. 
but by the mid-50s, transsexual would have been increasingly common. And then four, literally trans. It is literally a trans story with trans elements described in the trans language of the time. So where do you put it, Henry? I think all but explicit. I think it's all there. The multiple times she's referred to as boyish or her singing voice is described or just like within her relationships and also Madge Wildwood like 112% and OJ Berman (laughs) I'm pretty sold on. So I think like there are many characters in this book that read as explicitly trans to me. Like I feel like the language is pretty intentional. What do you think? Yeah, I would say, with respect to Holly specifically, it's definitely all but explicit. It's so heavily implied and consistently implied throughout the text in so many ways, especially the ways in which, like, men relate to her, that it feels nearly explicit. Like, this is definitely one of those, like, it's above a three, but it's not quite a four. In the case of Rusty Trawler, though, it's really interesting that, like, that that's a four. That's literally saying, like, oh, Rusty Trawler is a big old egg that needs to be cracked. And I think that's really interesting. And if for nothing else, you should just read this book, because I think you'll respond to it in a way similar to how I did, where I was just like, this is super duper trans. What do you think? Yeah, and it's just a great book. Like, obviously it's got problems, it's got, you know, chock full of racism, but I think the sad thing about the movie being so popular is that in the cultural imagination there's really only room for that movie version of Holly. Thank you for listening to this episode of Totally Trans, searching for the trans canon. We are nearly halfway through our first series of episodes and would love to hear what you think. Please let us know by tweeting at TotallyTransPod. We have a Patreon that can be found at patreon.com backslash totallytrans. If you back us at $3 or more per month, you can access our bonus episodes. If you back us at $2 or more per month, you can access all of our episodes one week early. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, because we live in a cyberpunk nightmare oligopoly. Join us next week, when I will be telling Ada why I think Yentl is totally trans. Totally Trans, Searching for the Trans Canon, is co-hosted by me, Henry Jardina, and you can find me on Twitter at Punk Groucho. You can also find me at henryjardina.substack.com, where I write about film and masculinity. And co-hosted and edited by me, Ada Rhodes Short. You can be found on Twitter at the Ada Rhodes, that is the underscore A-D-A underscore R-H-O-D-E-S. All quotes and audio clips are being used under fair use. And our music is royalty-free and was found on Pixabay. Till next week, keep searching. I don't really date men, because all of the men I've met have been really disappointing. But if I had a type, it's like either like very, very queer men or Hemingway. Guys, you need to find better men to date. We love you. Please back us on Patreon, because we are, we just love you for the money. Like Holly. He is married. Actually, I don't think he's alive anymore. Was married. 